What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today on this special episode, our guest is Jack Whalen. Jack is an architectural designer at Michael Graves Architecture and Design. He joined the firm in 2021 after completing his Bachelor of Architecture degree at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. As a student, he ran his own business doing architectural visualizations and also made models for de-remodeling and design blends in Philadelphia. Besides the design work, he worked for the ACE Mentor Program. Thank you so much for being here with us, Jack. Happy to be here. Absolutely, yeah. So let's get started. What was your path to working at Michael Graves Architecture and Design? So my path was more atypical to that of, I guess, typical architecture students. One thing I really tried to do when starting my career, going from high school to college, from college to the professional field, was being as open-minded as possible to the experiences that I would take on. So some of the experiences that I took on, such as the ACE mentoring program or de-remodeling, weren't actually typical architectural internship positions. They allowed Mm -hmm. me to grow skills that you wouldn't, per se, always take on uh, right away as a typical architectural designer. So with the ACE mentor program, I actually did a lot of admin functions with them and ran a lot of finances for them, coordinated with their donors and sponsors. And it really allowed me early on to really grow my connections and talk to a lot of industry leaders that I really wouldn't normally have the opportunity to contact, especially working for the president of the ACE Mentor Program. And then similarly with Dior Modeling as well, um, that was a high-end interior design firm. So not only for the modeling I was doing for them, I was also doing a lot of graphic design um, and promotion for them and estimating as well for some of their projects. So early on, I was getting a lot of these different facets of the industry that you know I might not be working in every day as an architectural designer, but it was really helping me build a grounding foundation for transitioning into my position that I'm at now as an architectural designer. Um, one of my biggest things that I 
found helpful with some of those other, you know, career paths. And I did have a traditional architectural uh, internship is really seeing what the other facets of, you know, the industry do. Cause I think the more you can understand that, the better you can coordinate with people and collaborate. So. I think that's a, that's an excellently interesting uh, path. And I think I can say this from having met so many architects and perhaps even de- developers that don't know that much about finance and actually the, the money behind things. Right. And I think whether it's uh, a firm like yours, Michael Graves, or a firm like mine, Redist, or any of those of any of our guests, if you don't understand the money that is happening behind the scenes, you're setting your firm up for failure. So I think that that is a terrific path that you were able to carve for yourself and that you were able to recognize has value uh, regardless of what role that you take within a design firm. Definitely. So that said, tell me what your day-to-day looks like at the firm. So the day-to-day, that's not you know a typical question that could be answered straight, but that's, that's something I love about the job actually. <laughs> because it can, it can vary so much in what I'm doing. One of the fun things with being an architectural designer is just, I mean, there, there's so much to learn, but with that, there's so many opportunities of different stuff you get to do. So, you know, I could be out on site surveying, taking 3D scans with some of our really high-tech equipment. You know, I could be working on high-end renderings for any one of, one of our projects. Um, I've done a lot of, you know, with my graphic design experience, I've done a lot of mm-hmm. custom material modeling and whatnot. We have a bunch of other fun projects we do outside of the firm. When I started, we had a a summer charrette we did for a Jewish sukkah competition. We got to design this Mm -hmm. tent-like structure, and we actually got to build it and construct it. But I also get a lot of the important tasks that a typical architectural designer would get, such as construction administration um, and working on submittals and RFIs some of the more concrete stuff to building your knowledge Mm -hmm. base up to work yourself towards an architect and preparing for your exams. So as I said, you know, it it really changes on a day-to-day basis. I could, I could be working on something that, you know, is local to Princeton one day, and then, you know, we could have another project pop up Mm -hmm. that's in New York or, I mean, around the world. um, And I could hop on that. So it's, it's honestly really exciting because it it really, you know, things change up. It's fast paced, but if you like that sort of thing, I like it because it, it doesn't get old. <laughs> so I, I wonder, though, the, the funny question would be, like, who doesn't like that sort of a thing? Right. Uh, to get interesting uh, things that change every single day. And if there are people like that, I don't want to be friends with them. So that's right. for sure. I would say what I particularly like about your firm is exactly what you described is the the range of projects to those. There are many that, that you do in the New York and New Jersey area, but you're also doing projects uh, for example, in Qatar right now and in Egypt. And I think that that allows the, the same very well-trained skills of observation and understanding and working together towards a really beautiful end result to be applied in different contexts. Most definitely, yeah. It's, I mean, it's quite an opportunity. I Just from, you know, for, for the viewers out there, you know, considering their future professional opportunities, especially coming out of school, you know, working at Michael Graves, that was something that was great for me. I I didn't see that anywhere else in terms of just the amount of opportunities to work on all these different projects. It's not something a lot of firms do. So it's it's definitely something unique Mm -hmm. about Michael Graves that I really appreciate. Perfect. And since you do qualify for being in your early 20s, since you're less than (laughs) 25, 
What do you hope to accomplish this long arc of a career that you have in front of you? What do you want to do? So for me, you know, there, there's a couple things. One, you know, in the long run, as a main goal, leave the world better off than I found it. But there's, you know, there's a couple ways I want mm-hmm. to do that. One of the biggest for me would be through sustainability. So that's something that I care deeply about and want to get better specialized in throughout my career. I'm more focused about, you know, creating that foundation like I talked about originally right now. But one of my biggest things would want sustainability to become more readily available and affordable, especially, you know, to Mm -hmm. affordable housing and whatnot. You know, right now, especially with a lot of high-end design and whatnot, you know, it's it's something that is often considered, but it's not always something that is is mainstream. And until we can get it to that point, you know, it's it's really hard to implement sustainability across the board. So if I can have any kind of positive impact on that movement um, and acceleration, then I would, you know, I would love to become a mm-hmm. part of that as a designer. Um, I feel responsible, especially a part of my generation to make an impact sustainably. And then another thing, Mm -hmm. because it's been so beneficial for me early on, um, I I didn't mention it with working for the president of the ACE Mentor Program, but I was actually in the ACE Mentorship Program in high school. Um, And for those of you that don't know what the ACE Mentorship Program is, it is a high school program that gives high school students early on experience to coordinate with architects, engineers, and specialists in the construction industry to work on you know, a simulation of some form of project. So you can get an idea of, you know, whether what career path would be right for you, whether that is something in the MEP field or architecturally. Um, And it's a really great early on experience that you would not normally get. And also a great way to start building your connections. But um, one thing that it really taught me was how powerful mentorship could be. And not just in my professional field, but just in in my personal life. So having that kind of person for me meant so much, especially transitioning from college to the professional field. I had a, a friend who was a mechanical engineer who made a world of a difference in how I evaluate myself and grow professionally. So in terms of my career goals, I would love to be that for someone else because I, I know how much that meant for me. And, you know, that can happen in, in different stages. You know, I'm qualified to do that for you know, a college student now, but as I grow, I, I would love to do that for, you know, architectural mm-hmm. designers coming into the field and people moving their way up the industry. Cause it's something I greatly enjoy. So. I think that's a terrific example, a terrific organization that you mentioned. I had the opportunity to be a mentor for uh, ACE New York when that's I worked fantastic. at Turner Construction. And I actually am, I'm definitely friends with a number of my colleagues that were uh, mentors, and there are at least four of them that will be appearing on the podcast towards the end of the season and into season three. Awesome. Uh, so that, that was like 10, 15 years ago. So yeah. I think that shows how, how much fun folks have in the program as well. And I think I want to touch on what you mentioned before mentorship, which was sustainability. So I think that there are positives to how ubiquitous the terms like green building and sustainability are. There also is a certain cynical perspective that perhaps a lot of it is talk and not necessarily action, which tends to be the way that generations like mine and older ones operate versus I think your generation, which tends to be a lot more sincere. So if 
you had the opportunity to do something in particular to advance sustainability faster and actually make it a bigger game changer than it is right now, what would you recommend that our industry does or an improvement that, that we could do to make, make sustainability happen and be taken up faster? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, sustainability right now, at least legally, is optional. So I think implementing, you know, phasing in sustainability into, you know, architectural code in the long run would be the game plan in terms of this is not optional. This is essential in order for our, you know, buildings to operate functionally. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have these, you know, other issues. Um, another big thing, um, just from, you know, the, the precedents I've studied and whatnot is really getting stuff like embodied carbon, carbon sequestering structures implemented more into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I think we tend to rely on older building methods a lot more often than we should um, that become increasingly outdated, mm-hmm. especially with certain developments. But I think if, especially if, you know, America invests in that kind of education for creating, you know, timber frame and sequestering carbon structures, just for an example, having that knowledge is going to allow for a lot more development of those structures, as well as having those resources available. You know, for example, from speaking to a few firms down in Florida that I was considering post-grad, they were very interested in doing a lot of timber frame construction because of the sustainable benefits. But the the closest Mm -hmm. vendor was in, I think, Alabama or something like that. So the difficulty of them getting that material, that actually increased the embodied carbon of those projects um, because of all the transportation Mm -hmm. required. So it actually made it less sustainable. So, you know, investing in making these resources more available as well is just as important as having the knowledge base to create these more sustainable structures on top of putting into code or, you know, inventing new devices. Um, But I would say the the most fast track way at the moment is to, you know, start meeting those 2030 goals, 2035 goals and make it less optional because I, you know, at least for my generation, I, I don't think it will be an option. I think it will define us. So, I think you're absolutely right. And when you were talking, it reminded me of a fantastic article recently at New York Mag, because I can't handle mainstream mm-hmm. news. I can only get my news through New York Magazine. And I typically read it like two months late, so I don't get nervous when I read these things. I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened like two months ago, so I can't do anything. Yeah. Not that I could do anything about it anyway. That's but that's method. how I consume. So I'm about two months behind on New York Mag, so I just... It is, yeah. Yeah. And I just read one. It's called The Guilty and the Damned is the name of the article. And they're talking specifically about what you're talking about, which is carbon emissions, uh, where they come from, who is responsible for them, and who is suffering. And what in particular I read in this, there are many amazing things, but one in particular is that 60% of all historical carbon emissions were produced in the lifetime of me. So the average average American is age 38 or 39. Right. So 60% of all historical carbon emissions were produced in my lifetime. That I think really, really brings to mind is how much of a hockey stick we're talking about in terms of what we're doing. And because of that acceleration, how quickly we need to change because of the momentum of badness that we've we've set ourselves 
up with already. And the, the article really goes on to something really provocative, which is not perhaps something that you touched on, but it's this idea of who is producing these emissions and who are the ones suffering. And there's a lot of complications to that. But I think when you take the broader perspective beyond the United States, it's generally speaking, the global north is producing all the carbon and the global south is the one that is uh, suffering from all of it. Right. And I think the, the more and more that the in many ways, I think the United States and its policies lead in terms of example uh, in both good and bad. And I think if, for example, the AIA is able to codify and push for these types of regulations that you're talking about to be more present throughout the IBC and local codes um, throughout the United States, maybe that sets an example for Canada, for Mexico, for other countries that can then say, they did it, so why don't we do it too? Right. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think there's uh, a lot of stuff to do, and sometimes it's it's hard to uh, find a direction amongst all of it. But I really like what you what you described uh, overall, which is about focusing on the core skills that you need, and then uh, not losing sight of the bigger picture of uh, what it is that you want to accomplish. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on this special episode of the American Building Podcast, Jack. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes and help us reach a wider audience by following us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.